There we go. Okay, welcome to Play, Train, Grow, a podcast that asks what is life really like chasing the dream of becoming a professional footballer? In this episode, I've, I've got a genuine delight to, to introduce Dr. Adam Kelly of Birmingham City University. Uh, Adam is the senior lecturer and course leader in sports coaching education. I mean, you almost focus on everything when I look at it, Adam. You've got psychology in there, the sports science. Uh, you've got your UEFA youth license. You've worked as an academy sports scientist, research and athlete development, and there's a book on the way as well. So, Adam, thank you for coming on. Is there anything I've missed in that intro? I usually get it wrong. So, yeah, yeah, no, no. I just uh, refer myself as an interdisciplinary sports scientist. It's quicker. <laughs> There's a word. There's a word I'm going to have to start using. I love that. Yeah. So again, I've, I've given a little bit there, but but please give us a little bit more background on yourself and what you like to, the areas you like to work in. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much for the introduction and uh, having me on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So I guess my journey started all the way back to when I was a young kid, when I uh, started playing football around sort of eight, nine years old, and I've continued playing ever since, um, which is when I fell in love with the game, really. Um, as a player growing up, I was really fortunate to have a number of fantastic coaches and role models uh, who inspired me uh, when I was an academy player or centre of excellence back then. It was called from under 13s to 16s. Oh, I'm um, sorry, Adam. Massive apologies. That's okay. Just cut out again. Sorry, internet unstable. Okay, we're back. Apologies. Can you, do you just start that again? Because you just dropped out, as you'd said, role models. And I don't want to miss that role model, but I do apologise. I've got an easy editing tool that I'll be able to just... Yeah, yeah. So you, you don't want to start your bit again? Yeah, I'll just start your little... I'll just say if, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit more, and then I can cut that bit out, basically. Sorry, I do apologise. First time this has ever happened. Right, so um, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit more there, Adam? Give us a bit more background into yourself. Oh, sorry, but that's when I said thank you, wasn't it? Yeah, man, it's all right here, the editing. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I was just I can in my head what I didn't say. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. All right, just start again. I can edit really easily, so I'll just do that. Yeah, yeah. You can just fire away, man. Don't worry about any of these things. It's the joys of paying for good editing software as it takes. <laughs> yeah, I do. So do you want to give us a, a little bit of background again on yourself, just beyond the sort of introduction I've given you there? Yeah, no problem. Thanks uh, very much for the invite and having me on there. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess my journey started all the way back when I was sort of eight, nine years old, uh, when I fell in love with football and have continued to play ever since, really. So, you know, growing up, I was lucky enough to have a number of fantastic coaches and role models. Uh, who inspired me to sort of continue within this discipline today. Uh, the likes of Eamon Dolan and Tommy Wilden at Exeter City Academy or Centre of Excellence, it was it was called back then, from under 13s through to 16s. Also had really supportive parents, grandparents, siblings, and other sort of family and friends who were extremely supportive of me during that process. Um, I was then released at under 16s uh, at the Centre of Excellence for being too small, and um, uh, which was a, a common a common theme used across across uh, academies and centre of excellences. Uh, I then went on to to play non-league football. Uh, broke through to Timmington Town's first team when I was playing for the under 18s there, uh, and have gone on to play for the likes of Salisbury City, Truro City, Pool Town, uh, Weymouth, that sort of Southern League Conference South level. So. Not to the heights of league football, but a half decent sort of non-league career uh, that, that helped me through my studies financially. Um, so, yeah, I went on to, to university and studied my undergraduate at Solent University uh, and then on to my master's and PhD at the University of Exeter uh, with Professor Mark Wilson and Professor Craig Williams. So I learned a huge deal off of those two. Uh, and then whilst I was studying there, I was also the head of Academy Sports Science at Exeter City. Uh, academy where it all began for me really uh, so I was there for seven years uh, while studying my PhD which was a multidisciplinary investigation into the talent ID and development processes uh, so I did al always see myself 
uh, as a coach in my early years, to be fair. Um, but as I continued to study and engage in research, I particularly enjoyed it um, and made that decision to take a full time step into academia where I'm now senior lecturer and course leader for sports coaching and physical education at Birmingham City University. So I've designed, validated and now lead our, our current BSc in sports coaching and physical education, as well as currently supervising a number of PhD students across a range of sports and collaborative partners from Worcester Warriors Rugby Club, uh, Warwick's County Cricket Club, Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club, uh, the England RFU, the ECB and England Squash, uh, mainly looking at how to create more appropriate settings for youth development and engaging in, in the organisational structures that that present those to young athletes. So yeah, that's a quite, well, a longish brief introduction. <laughs> oh, I love it, I love it. We need, the more information I get, the more questions I can ask, it's brilliant. Yeah. So in your, like, in your current role at the moment, like, what's the best thing about it? What do you love about being in the position that you're in? Yeah, so I was really um, passionate about making that transition from, uh, applied practitioner into uh, academia and they are two really different disciplines um, and for anyone out there who's sort of looking to try and make that transition it you know it is difficult but you've got to really persevere I think it was something like 56 oh I can't, I can't remember that was it we scrapped that <laughs> um, you can edit this bit can't you yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. So any any aspiring um, practitioners who are looking to make that transition, you know, it is difficult, but you, you've got to work hard and persevere in, in the face of setbacks or rejections or the number of interviews that you have. Um, but massive thanks to Natalie Walker and the rest of the BCU team for, for giving me that opportunity. So over three years ago now, as I, as I went in as a lecturer in sport and exercise science and continued to progress from there. Yeah, what is it that I like? I like those little bits there. What is it that you you genuinely wake up every morning and think I can't believe I'm going to get to do? Because when I talk to people, they're like literally living their dream. So what is it for you? That you like you wake up and you sort of like I can't believe I'm going to do this or that. What's that sort of moment you get every so often that surprises you? So working as a senior lecturer at university, um, there are a number of sort of roles that you have to to cover. Um, from teaching and learning uh, through to administrative duties um, but the part that I enjoy the most is working with collaborative partners to try and facilitate positive change within their environments um, there's a lot of organizations and professional clubs that are doing fantastic things but what's important is to try and always uh, do better and become better so we continue to evolve so yeah, my passion is is working with those partners who who also have that same drive to try and make that positive change uh, within their organisations. And, and yeah, for me, that's the best part. Yeah, I love it. And the fact that you got to play, Andrew, in the academic part, I really like, and that's why I was looking to get in touch with you to, to get you on the podcast. Um, something I ask the players that I talk to when I, I chat them, I chat a lot to sort of 18 to 22 year olds who have been through the journey and have or haven't been successful. And I usually ask them if they haven't made it in football, do they think football helped them in their later life? And being through the sort of academy pathway when you were younger or, or what was the academy pathway at that time, do you think that's helped in maybe like adding discipline or focus or anything on, on your journey as you went into academia as well? That's an interesting question. It's not, not something I've really thought of too much. I guess it definitely has. Whether it was the academy environment that was created or the role models that I had for myself, um, it's probably a combination of both. So the coaches I had growing up, particularly within those sort of youth development phase years from sort of 12, 13s through to, through to 16s, they, they made me really grounded and yeah, I guess that that discipline is instilled with you during those years and, and you take that on to adulthood. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I guess that has been a positive impact on me in terms of like developing my discipline and self-regulation and stuff like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, 
just questions I love to ask. So let's get into sort of the, the nitty gritty of, of what today is going to be about. Um, I'd like to just sort of start off by saying, um, or asking, should I say, not saying, use of great English. Um, what do you see as the biggest impact on developing youth players at the moment uh, in the current climate? So I would first off start off by saying that I think when it comes to literature, football is absolutely leading the way in terms of talent and athlete development. Um, and a lot of what's being researched in football areas doesn't even exist in other sports. So when it comes to, to research, I think football's leading the way. Um, and there's obviously, like I mentioned, there's a lot of real good work going on in professional academies at the minute, particularly sort of like in the UK and across Europe. Um, they're definitely becoming more professionalised which is creating more footballing opportunities, more hours of practice and more hours of play, uh, more hours of competition. That's created job opportunities for prospective students. Uh, so there's more support staff. You think about the working environment of top academies. They've got not just coaches anymore. They've got um, support coaches or assistant coaches. They've got position-specific coaches. Uh, you've got age-specific coaches. And then you've got sports psychologists, sports nutritionists, performance analysts. I mean, the list can carry on, can carry on going. So it's definitely created an environment for more employment opportunities as well. Um, and I think, like I mentioned, we're definitely creating sort of some best practice guidelines for other sports to follow. Um, but then having said that, uh, you've also got to consider uh, some of the, drawbacks of the early specialised approach of some of these academies now. So absolutely don't want to be critical of anyone working in the field. Uh, everyone's working towards the same goal and for the same reasons, because they want to try and produce the best footballers for the future and create these opportunities for young players to, to become professionals. But I think the earlier you select players, um, the less accurate you're going to be in selecting the right players. And because you've selected them, they then get more opportunities. They train more, become better players. And they're the ones that stay in the system. So I think it almost creates limited opportunities for other players who might not necessarily have started football at the age of four years old thing because uh, their family aren't interested in football, for example. So, yeah, I think that's one of the, the possible negative long-term effects of of academies and, and one of the key areas for discussion within sort of development of youth athletes or youth players at the moment. Yeah, it's, I, I do. I, I like your point there on the early specialisation. Um, just my personal point of view is I would like just personally to probably scrap professional sort of a specialisation before maybe even 11s and 12s, if I'm honest. I think even at, even at you know, nine and 10 years old, I think it's certainly a wee bit too early to Put your hat on a kid and say, "Yep, you're you're going to be it, son or young girl. You're you're going to be it." It certainly is a a really important point. Um, do you think that's something that's maybe niche to this time? As you've said, there's more money in the industry. There's more professionalisation. There's more jobs. Or do you think this might be something that's going to stick around and sort of see when you're seeing these elite under eights and elite under sevens kicking about? Yeah, just going back to your first point. Um, around early specialisation um, I was at the Expertise and Skill Acquisition Network conference recently and Joe Baker uh, from York University did a fantastic keynote um, and he looked at some of the challenges and pitfalls of talent identification and development and one of the things he, he discussed is like, do we actually even know what early specialisation is like, and who's to actually know that early specialisation is bad for athletes. I know there's some preliminary research out there that's explored those who specialise early. Um, there's links to things like burnout, dropout, mental health issues, possible long-term injuries. Um, but different environments that are created by different academies might look completely different, but they're both specialised environments. So I've, I've been into a few academies uh, and within those foundation phase years, there's rarely much coaching. 
there's a lot of facilitating going on by the coaches. So it's almost child-led and play um, like activities that these kids are involved in. Whereas you go into some others, other academies and it's more led by the coaches, which is probably more of like a specialized environment. But because these players are being selected, they're pigeonholed into this early specialized environment. So like, when we consider what is early specialization, just because the kid's been selected at a certain age, does that mean they're exposed to the same specialized environment as another kid? Um, so I think we need to sort of reconsider what coach-led practice looks like, particularly when we think about retrospective questionnaires that are often used to explore these athlete trajectories. Uh, kids put in a certain, or the participants put in a certain number of hours that they've engaged in coach-led practice, and that's what feeds into those who have specialised or engaged or whatever it might be. So I just think we need to reconsider slightly how we look at early specialisation and what it actually looks like in all these different environments. Um, but yeah, it might be worth you repeating your first question because I forgot. <laughs> my brain too. I've moved on in my yeah. head. <laughs> Is it Mark Williams' book, The Best? I'm, I'm nearly finished it. Um, okay. He, he's in that. He's talked about. Um, I hope it's Mark Williams. I don't want to get it wrong. But he was talking about um, the difference is often the practice away from training and not in training. And I just liked how you said there that there's coach led or non coach led. And I think that's a really good point that sometimes you might bring them in, but you just let them play because the facilitation of play in their own time at the moment doesn't seem to be as high as it was when, say, me and you were younger and you'd walk out the door at eight in the morning and you walk back in the door at nine at night, sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that links back to Paul Ford and colleagues' uh, early engagement hypothesis, whereby they highlight that the number of play-like activities in a specific sport is what helps facilitate long-term development within that sport. Um, and their research was specifically in football with that. Um, but again, that leads to the question, Was are those hours that they're engaging in the factor that is facilitating their development or is it just the fact that they're engaging more hours because they love playing football more? They have more interest in playing football more. So are indicators such as interest or the willingness to like practice or play more, more of an indicator than actual the number of hours? So again, I, I think we're still limited in everything that we know. Yeah, it's interesting. So can I now throw in the to the specialization of them we've talked about the relative age effect and how your birthday can impact on development opportunities as well yeah and what, what was the question you asked before because i think that was quite quite relevant i can't remember what it was oh, my i've got a brain like a sieve my friend yeah it will disappear and maybe in about three hours time it'll come yeah. back to it you know so i might it might okay, be no worries. yeah we can move on what we can do is we can we can just reset another chat and when my brain does eventually remember what it was asking, I could just ask it on the second attempt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think it will lead on nicely to this chat about relative age effects now because yeah, yeah it's all linked to the specialization stuff. I wish I could remember. Honestly, my brain is my brain is torture. I should stop that's why I says I wouldn't talk too often now. Yeah. Because suddenly I divulge and I move and it becomes unbelievable. Um, what was it? I'm talking about something. What was it? Relative age effect, early specializations, academies. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Like what we were talking about, it goes, it goes on nicely now. To, to yeah, yeah. So, like I was saying, um, if we move on to sort of relative age effect, how does your birthday impact um, potential development opportunities, and, and what's the what's your thoughts on it all? So the relative age effect has been become quite a common or a hot topic at the moment uh, with regards to the literature. More and more research is coming out to show how um, talent pathways are overrepresented with athletes or players who are born at the start of the selection cutoff date compared to an underrepresentation of those born at the end of the cutoff date. I mean, this research was first shown in sport in 1985 and sort of over 30 years later, we're still talking about this subject now. Um, is it over 30 years? Yeah, it's over 30 years. <laughs> Just checking that one. Uh, eight, nine, nine, 
you're asking a dyslexic yeah. count here, so you've got yeah. No Sorry, I'll, I'll keep you going. <laughs> You'll have to edit that so I sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or I could leave it in and it makes us all sound really genuine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this was shown over 30 years ago and, and we're still to this day grouping athletes in this one size fits all um, fixed chronological age group approach where athletes are grouped by, by 12 or 24 month age groups, depending on, on what... Um, the organization uses um, so essentially those who are born at the start of the cutoff date ha have a number of advantages i mean the first obvious one is the advanced physiological skill set that that they may have um, the analogy that i use is if you think of someone who was born uh, well i'll use a scottish example because uh, your cutoff date is different if, if you've got someone who's born in january um, they'll be competing in the same annual age group as someone who is born in December. So you think of these um, as two babies. So you've got a 12-month-old and a, a baby who's literally just come out of his mother's womb. Those physiological differences are going to be prevalent all the way through up until adulthood. So inevitably, when scouts or coaches or whoever it is is selecting athletes, those who have that advanced physiological skill set due to their relative age or advanced age um, are going to perhaps get noticed more often. Now, coupled with that physiological skill set, you've got an advanced psychosocial skill set. So up to 12 months psychological and social skills that you, you've developed. Uh, you have a potential older training age, so you might have engaged in the sport up to 12 months more. Um, and then when we think of all these things combined due to being relatively older, um, some, some research, um, uh, Steve Lawrence, um, Jan Verbeek and Laura Jonker over, over in Holland uh, looked at uh, league uh, positions and the number of points per team based on their average relative age or based on that average age and teams who were relatively older were winning league titles or finished higher up the league tables compared to teams who had an average a younger average relative age so essentially what was that showing us is those teams who are winning leagues are actually for the players who are on average relatively older so if you've got these players who are relatively older winning more games in which is coupled with things like enjoyment um, the perception that you're better than someone else um, and obviously the opportunities that's presented with that through like scouting networks and whatever they're going to gain more opportunities and perhaps stay in the sport longer whereas if you're relatively younger and you're finishing lower down a league table you're losing more games might not enjoy it as much you're not necessarily perceived as good as good as someone who's relatively older. So again, you might um, become disinterested and drop out of the sport. So I think we're only scratching the surface at the moment by showing these birth quartile distributions of an overrepresentation of those born at the start and those born at the end. That like we really need to dig underneath and find out why this is happening. Um, so we think about the initial enrollment of kids if if they're starting sports at eight, nine, ten years old or whatever it is, those who are relatively older are winning more, they're playing better, which inevitably, inevitably gets them selected into uh, talent pathways or academies. And then the longevity is they stay in that talent pathway and the gap gets bigger between the relatively older players and relatively younger players. And those who may have had the potential to achieve professional status but weren't at an elite age group level miss out on all that access to facilities coaches and training opportunities and so they inevitably don't make it is that uh is that across all sports effectively is that something that is just seen across everything or are there any that are slightly different from from the stuff that you look at 
Yeah, so I've done a range of studies now uh, across a number of sports and did recently published a paper with some of my uh, Spanish colleagues and they have shown relative age effects across the, the Spanish national talent pathway in handball. And um, I've been working with the RFU and we found relative age effects throughout the age grade pathway from under sevens, eights, all the way through to 18s, um, as well as at their national talent pathway um, from 15s all the way through to uh, 21s. Uh, and then it just levels out at adulthood. Um, the the only uh, association I've worked with so far that I've not found relative age effects is within the England squash talent pathway. And interestingly, they adopted a different uh, age grouping strategy compared to your traditional chronological age groups. So about eight or nine years ago, they implemented a strategy called birthday banding. Um, and essentially each athlete is banded within their own personal age group based on their birthday. So essentially every seven-year-old plays against all the seven-year-olds and then on their individual birthday, they'll move up and then they'll play all the eight years old. Um, so you don't have this linear pathway of being a birth call one throughout your whole time as a, as a kid through to adulthood or a birth call four on your birthday, you're a birth quarter one. Sorry, on your birthday, you're a birth quarter four. But as you move through your 12 months, you become a three, a two, a one. And then on your birthday, again, you drop back down. So it creates this nonlinear pathway. And that also creates different social comparisons within the groups. So you're not always a birth quarter four against a birth quarter one, for example. Uh, you might go from being the most dominant character in your group to the least dominant character in the group because of uh, birth effects and um, so i think that's a really interesting strategy that they use and it actually helps moderate relative age effects due to the fact that coaches and selectors are choosing these players based on their potential at that moment in time not selecting those players based on how good they are within that age group so players are getting selected based on individual circumstances not as a collective or compared against all of all of the rest of the group um, yeah it's really interesting isn't it? it takes on a totally different way of looking at things compared to the one that, that i'm used to anyway so is there a way of mitigating this working around it could we i don't know if we think about scouting as a, a way we start about bringing players in if i was to scout somebody would i look to include other factors, maybe psychological, home environment, try and calculate how much time they've spent training in the sport, or is this a quite an embedded cultural theme? Yeah, just with regards to the birthday planning, I wouldn't suggest that that would be relevant for a team sport. If you think of squash as an individual sport, it's probably quite easy and, and adaptable to move players up and, up and down quite frequently, whereas football you need to have those social dynamics or group dynamics, which is part of part and parcel of the development. And then if you think of the administrative duties that would come with that as well, it's probably not, not a viable option. Um, so I do think we need to look beyond chronological age group and in youth soccer to try and try and have the same impact in terms of creating the most appropriate environment for every player to achieve their potential. And um, yeah, with regards to your, to your question around scouting and selecting, I mean, the simple answer is we, we don't know enough yet about how to predict the future performance capabilities of players. So at the moment, I think a lot of scouts, practitioners, coaches, whoever it is selecting players, are selecting them based on how good they are within that age group rather than their potential to develop into a professional. But then the question back to me would be, well, how do I identify potential in an athlete compared to how good they are at that moment in time? So you might have a big kid who is an early maturer, they're birth quarter one, they're standing out because they're taking it past everyone and they're unbelievable on the ball. So you're not, not going to sign them because you don't know if that's because 
they're an early mature or a birth court one or because they are genuinely talented and have that potential to develop into an expert performer. So it is a really difficult position. Um, so I think you need to take more of a focus on giving coaches and practitioners education and knowledge around selecting players based on their current age, a little bit like the birthday banding. So you're selecting athletes based on their current age rather than selecting them based on their current age group. So if you had a trial tournament, for example, you, you'd often put all the kids out, they'd play against each other, they would list the best players and they'd offer them a contract without taking into consideration things like their birthday or their maturity status or their psychological profile or whatever it might be. So I think more objective data is required to help inform those coaching uh, decisions. Uh, there was an interesting study um, that looked at age-ordered shirt numbering systems during trials so essentially coaches were given the information of the month that the players were born during this selection period and that gave them the knowledge of where they were within that year and it helped them moderate those relative age differences during the trials so just little things like providing coaches with more objective data and information during selection procedures would would certainly help that's a really interesting idea. That, yeah, I, I like that idea quite a lot. Actually, yeah, that's it would certainly help. We I mean, no matter what sport it is, if you're if you're rocking up to watch a game or to watch any game anywhere in any sport, if, if every team adopted one to four or one to five, yeah, being a certain age, that, yeah, I like that idea. Something I might look to explore later on. Um, from my personal background, the first age group that I ever helped put together at an academy. Um, up the road from where I stay at Alloa, we focused heavily on players that were playing up at community level. So is that, you know, a way that we can look at uh, helping individuals who are either lower in their, their age band or higher in their age band? Because playing up's always been a, or playing down in, in some terms has always been an interesting topic I've been involved in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that's something that I'm, I'm really... Um, passionate about too and we actually published the first paper that looked at, at playing at uh, so first we did a quant quantitative study that looked at factors that differentiated those who played up in academy football compared to those who did not and then we also did a qualitative study that gathered the perceptions of athletes who played up um, to get their thoughts on the process so what we found was those who played up within the foundation phase was often uh, technical and tactical focused attributes that they had. So essentially you would watch these players and they would seem better. Whereas in the YDP, it was more representative of the four corner model. So those factors that differentiated players who played up uh, across all four corners. So for example, the ones who played up were, were more mature uh, they had greater technical and tactical skills. Uh, they engaged in more coach-led practice and peer-led play. Uh, and they had a higher score in their perceptions to engage in organised practice. Um, and also had a perception of support from others. So there was this psychosocial plus physical and technical tactical um, differences within those players. And so as a coach or a practitioner, if you're considering playing a player up, you need to consider that player holistically and not just think about them as being a better player. What was also interesting was, um, I think it was something like 12 out of the 13 players in the FDP who played up were born in the first half of the year. And nine out of 12 or something like that were born in the first half of the year who played up in the YDP. So those who were playing at were more often than not relatively older as well. So if we look at a strategy to try and moderate relative age effects, is playing up and playing down um, a more viable option? So we've recently created or written a book chapter on a flexible chronological approach. And this is to try and encourage and organizational structures to adopt a more flexible chronological approach rather than a fixed 
chronological approach. So I know in some countries, you have to fill out a number of forms in order to allow athletes to play up or play down. Uh, whereas football academies in England, particularly is sort of the foundation phase all the way through to the, the youth development phase. Athletes often play up and play down quite frequently. So it's almost embedded within the culture. So I think having that more flexible approach and allowing athletes to play up to create almost that birth quarter four effect where all of a sudden they're not the oldest player in the group. They have to run harder. They have to work harder. They have to think a little bit quicker because plays a little bit quicker. So you're creating a more challenging environment for them, for them to play in. Um, and then with regards to the perceptions of playing up, there was two key themes that emerged and that was they perceive playing up as uh, challenging and a way of progressing. So essentially, they perceive playing up offered a greater challenge uh, to their football development. And they also saw it as an opportunity to progress because they were being challenged more. Um, and they almost had this kudos because they were playing in an age group. Now, when we talk about playing down, when you say it, it's used within football environments, it's used quite a lot, probably a lot less than playing that, but it's yet to be empirically evaluated. And I just think we're doing something not necessarily knowing the consequences of playing athletes down. So if you were a kid and you got asked to play down an age group, you might you probably think there's this perception that you're not necessarily as able or you're not as good as your age match peers. Whereas the reality is they might be playing you down because you're a late maturer or you're a birth court four, or it might be, say we're going to community or grassroots football because you're not as good. But we, we want that opportunity to create the right environment for every player to achieve their potential. I, I remember watching Soccer AM probably about two years ago and John Stones was was given an interview and he got asked what was his first tears in um, football. And he reflected back at his time at, at Barnsley Academy and talked about how he was pulled in by his coaches at 12s or 13s and was told that he was going to be playing down that year um, because he wasn't necessarily as developed as his teammates. And he talked about how he was distraught because he was pulled away from his friends, didn't think he was as good as uh, his peers. Um, but that's obviously done with the right intentions from Barnsley because they've actually seen he's not necessarily at that stage in his development. But him as a person has not perceived it that way. So I think we definitely need to learn more about playing down and the consequences because that's obviously had a positive impact on his long-term development because he's essentially achieved expertise and he's gone on to have a real good career. So that setback may have actually been a, this, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily the defining moment of him making it, but that may have created a, uh, the analogy of a rocky road for him to make or come through that setback because he saw it as a setback. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely need to know more about playing up and playing down. And we did those first two studies in football, like I mentioned at the start, and there's no other research that sort of explored athletes playing beyond their chronological age group or, or below their chronological age groups in other sports. Yeah, it's really, I think perception, that's such an important point. And it's probably just that communication flow that's, that's needed to be increased. Um, certainly up here, um, Playing up is something that, that I've always tried to do. I've always tried to push. Um, if I was to throw something quite extreme at you here, that it's just something I've always thought about, that would there be a way of, say, having a, a height, not a height restriction, but a physiological restriction? So say we're talking under 13s and you've got the kid who's a really early specialiser and at 12 years old, he's already 5'10", 5'11", even pushing six foot which I've come across a few times, would it be quite extreme for me to say that you have to move up an age group because of your size? Again, a very good question. 
because it's not necessarily just about development. It, it's about a kid who's, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 and, and wants to play football with their friends. So again, it's not necessarily about this one thing. Like I mentioned, you've got to think about it holistically. I think a lot of players in academy pathways aren't necessarily driven by playing with their friends. A lot of the players that I've come across are driven to try and become professional football players and they'll do everything they can to try and make that dream come true. And like you say, if, you, if you're told you're going to play up for this game or for this training session, for this season, whatever it is, all of a sudden your shoulders lift, you've got that perception you're a better player. The teammates around you have got that perception that you're a better player. But then you reflect and think, hold on a minute, the majority of the kids that are playing are, are birth court ones. So you're creating this perception that birth court ones are all of a sudden better than all of the ones who are relatively younger in their age, age match group. So again, I think the culture and the philosophy of the club is representative of the outcomes of all these relative age effects and how you interpret that within your club is, is key. Like some, some clubs do fantastic stuff and others are still sort of stuck in their traditional ways and, and don't necessarily look, look beyond those age group and structures and, and the long-term consequences of those. Is there also a part where for me it's like the team needs to have the big lad at the back with power and pace because he snuffles out so many attacks and then up the other end of the pitch, you need to have that absolute whippet that can go in behind, that can receive and can go and can play. So I think sometimes even the game of football can can keep people in those sort of uh, culture, if that was the word, but the specifics where, you know what, we need that guy because if we don't have that guy, we'll concede another three or four or five games a week. So it's it's such an interesting topic. And I'm, I think what I'm getting from you is we're, we're still not really sure about how it all goes together at the moment. Yeah. And like you mentioned, kids can be pigeonholed into positions by the time they're seven, eight, nine years old because of their stature at that moment in time. So you might get a kid who's an early maturer and they're half a foot bigger than the rest of the team. All of a sudden, they're the goalkeeper or they're the centre half because they've got that physical skill set. Whereas in reality, at adulthood, they might actually be a better striker or a winger. I know a lot of academies now will, will play athletes or players in all different positions up until sort of 11s, 12s, where they'll start narrowing it down. Um, but I think particularly at grassroots, you're right in terms of um, understanding the, the more holistic needs of playing in different positions, understanding the differences in maturation, understanding the differences in relative age. Um, but then at the same time, when you think of these grassroots environments, a lot of them are parents who are doing it because their son or daughter's playing. Um, do they want to spend additional time in coach education and, and learning more about that? Or do they just want to go and have fun with their kids and do what they can? So, yeah, it is a difficult one. Um, and the differences between grassroots football and academy football is the gap between the skill sets of coaches is becoming becoming quite big. Yeah, so there's so much I could ask you. I think I'll go down the, the line of, is there a way, like, from organisationally then, to think big organisations like the FA and the SFA, could they try and maybe dictate a little bit that we make, like you're saying, maybe a kid has to play in three positions over a three-game process? Or do you think the clubs just have kind of too much power or there's there's just too many people to cover to get these things in place. Yeah, again, another good point. Um, in my previous life at Exeter, within the foundation phase, each player had to play a minimum of two and a half periods uh, out of the four. And within those two and a half, they had to play a minimum of three positions. So each of the uh, quarters, they, they couldn't play in the same position. Um, so then that was through from nines, tens, elevens, and I know a lot of other clubs are, are doing that sort of thing. Um, but like you say, at, at grassroots level, where these players are actually coming from, it, 
it's, it's difficult to implement policies with such limited resource um, and trans translating that knowledge and understanding into practice in such a vast environment is going to be really difficult um, so yeah I'm, I'm not too sure on that one to be honest I think uh, oh, again quite <laughs> a big question and then we haven't even mentioned the w word winning how, how that then impacts on either how the individual teams or the coaches or the parents I mean We've not even touched on winning and how that influences all these things. If you've got the, the quick guy up top scoring 35 a season at under 11s and under 12s, why would you want to move him up? Because he's enjoying himself and he's scoring all these goals, you know? It's such a such a fun topic, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. And, that, and that's, that's the priority, isn't it? You, you want the kids to enjoy playing football as much as they possibly can. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed that. I'd like to just sort of slide a little bit onto your book because that's basically your, your sort of book is um, Birthday Advantages and the uh, Relative Age Effect in Sport, isn't it? Yeah, available in all good bookstores now. <laughs> it's, it's on my way. I have got it. And I know we've covered quite a, a bit um, from what's in your book, but can I ask you just a wee bit about maybe uh, advice for parents and if they've got a late mature or an early developer and and what you sort of advise towards that line as well That's, yeah i mean from my perspective i haven't done much research with parents um so yeah i'm, I'm not sure i feel comfortable throwing that one out there do you maybe no I, I get that totally it's it's just one of those things it's like sometimes they get the, they're the forgotten group, if you know what I mean. We always talk about the coaches and the players and the academies and the teams. And I just think sometimes that um, we just forget about parents every so often. And it's, I don't know, because it, I've not been through it yet. My wee man's only two. So I've not been at that point where I've got, you know, a, a son who, you know, do the parents approach the academy and say, could we move him up because he's bigger? You know, is he going to get more time? Is he smaller? It's maybe if you've just had any experiences like that in, in your time in football. Yeah, okay, it's a good, good point. So from my pers personal perspective, this is probably more personal than research-driven. I've, I've sat in numerous reviews with parents and players. They have them sort of three times a year at most clubs where you sit down with a player and parent. Um it, it may differ from club to club, uh, but you essentially just talk about how the kid's doing and areas for development or areas that they can improve their current strengths or whatever it might be. And I've always noticed that the parents who like just absolutely love their kid, agree with what you say and do what they can to, to help them get to training and games and don't sit there asking lots of questions or like challenging what you're saying or getting their back up. But in the long term, those kids seem to be the ones who actually progress and develop. Whereas those who have parents who not necessarily get in the way, but are focused too much on the process and what's going on rather than enjoying the ride and, and enjoying going to a game and clapping when the kid's doing well. So for me, it would be trust the academy system or, or trust the coaches who are involved and, and leave them to do their job and do everything that you can to sort of look after you, look after your kid and, and do the best they can. Um, yeah, did you enjoy today and were you the hardest working player? Those are, those are two nice questions you can ask afterwards and just reassure them that, yeah, that you will love them no matter what. There was that really good video from from Robin Van Persie. I'm sure you might have seen it where he was talking about his kid and how he had a setback and he was blaming others. And he was like, look, I'll love you no matter what. But this, is, and I thought that was quite, um, quite, quite nice, nice way of saying it. Yeah, no, I do. Anyone that's, that's not seen it, it, I think that came off the High Performance podcast where Jake Humphrey and Damien Hughes, where it was, it's like, we'll set this, the love aside, I will always love you, but you need to be accountable. You need to decide effectively where you want to be, what you want to do, and you need to take control of it. And Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'll, if you want to go and play grassroots football with your friends, like we can, we can go and play grassroots football with your friends. Like, I'm absolutely fine with that. So, yeah, I think. I love it. 
Right. We're coming to the end of this because I, I, I could go on forever, as I've said to you before. So so what I, what I want to do here is throw the, the sort of blank academy question at you. So if I was to bring you and I run my own elite academy, we've got age groups from eights through to the reserve team. And I'm bringing you in to just take control of the academy and you can move it in any direction you want. What are the sort of first two or three things from your areas of sort of expertise that you would like to implement to my beautiful and magical academy? Yeah, that's that's a tough one because it's um, yeah, there's so much, so much you could do with um, a blank canvas. Um, I think just reflecting on the conversations that we've had is firstly is focus on indicators of potential overperformance uh, like I said it's extremely difficult you don't have a crystal ball to be able to predict who's going to be the next professional um, but focus on those who might have the characteristics to progress or the potential to progress to future professional status rather than focusing on age group elites and that can be looking beyond things like relative age maturity status psychosocial characteristics how good they are technically and tactically um, and i think that's definitely something that's sort of um been growing within coach education is a lot of it used to be this technical tactical detail around shape and pattern how you deliver drills etc but yeah look at the player more holistically and indicators of, of potential and how these might look different between a birth core one in a group versus maybe a birth core four. And um, the second one is like, what age is healthy? What age is it healthy to start selecting athletes into academy environments and almost creating this full-time environment for them? Do we make it more community focused within that foundation phase where you embed your academy within the community? And um, and then as you transition towards that youth development phase, those top players with the most potential will inevitably come to fruition for you. How you do that, again, I think you probably need a lot of time and effort to, to put that on paper before it's implemented. Um, but I definitely think that will create a wider pool of potential talent and it will mitigate any, um, or negate against any, possible drawbacks of selecting at such early ages so you create a wider pool of talent for more players to give them more time to develop um, and I'd also try and create that for both males and females I think we certainly need a more equitable environment in terms of developmental opportunities and um, for those how can we integrate them in together um, playing together etc and um, and then the last one would be the connection between the academy and first team. So you could have a kid that is selected to play in the academy at under nines and their whole 10 years of development all the way through to sort of under 18s, under 21s. And when they re reach that pinnacle of the academy journey, they've got a manager in the first team that doesn't like the kid. So they don't play and they're released. So you've got 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it is of um, practice or journey that that kid has been on. But just because at that moment during that transition, a manager doesn't like them, they don't get that opportunity. So I think there needs to be a huge connection and a long-term vision and someone who works in the club that understands that long-term journey. Um, so it creates more opportunities for players coming through the system rather than a coach just looking at that moment in time to try and win games. I mean, you look at Brighton this season, I think, I think they've done a fantastic job in terms of the backroom staff and everyone working towards this same model, uh, bringing players through. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are three, three things that I would potentially consider. No, I love it. It's great input, and it's uh, I really enjoyed this. Actually, I properly enjoyed it. Um, again, I give you a little bit of, of time to mention that book if you want, because I, it's on <coughs> that. Um, 
is it something that you've you've enjoyed is it something new because you know you sent me a little bit of info about it and it it covers a huge area of of expertise and sports yeah so um well first off it's been an absolute pleasure uh, and honor to work alongside Jean Cote um who's one of the leading experts within sort of talent and athlete development. I've learned so much off him over the last sort of five, six years. Um, and also Jennifer Turnage, who's one of his uh, PhD students now full-time at, at Queen's University. She's, she's been absolutely fantastic in terms of helping me develop as a researcher. Um, and then Mark Jeffries as well from BCU, who, who's also edited the book. So, so the four of us put our heads together and, and created this book on birth advantages and relative age effects. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's got 13 chapters and divided into three sections that are sandwiched by an introduction and summary. So the first section almost sets the stage with conceptual methodological foundations of organisational structures. The second section looks at group banding strategies in youth sport. And then the final section looks at the role of social environmental factors. So after we've sort of laid this foundational knowledge and conceptual knowledge, we look at these group banding strategies, some of the stuff that we talked about today. So there's a chapter on playing up an age group, and that's specifically in soccer. Um, we've got a chapter on birthday banding. So we've looked at how England squash have devised this um, alternative age group strategy. Um, there's a chapter in there, something we haven't really talked about today, is the average team age method. Again, that's off the back of the work with the Dutch FA, who um, who have been looking at creating this average team age method um, to make sure that teams playing against each other have this average age rather than being over-representative of older players, under-representative of younger players. And then finally, again, something that we didn't delve into too much was an, another chapter on biobanding as well so grouping athletes based on their maturity status rather than looking at grouping them with fixed chronological age groups so that's the second section of the book and then the final section we look a little bit more broadly around some of the social environmental factors that can influence selection and development so there's a chapter there on uh, race and relative access to wealth now this is uh, from one of my PhD students, Tom Brown, who's been working with Warwickshire County Cricket Club, uh, Essex County Cricket Club and the ECB to look at the uh, social demographic profile of the England talent pathways from under nines through to, through to first teams. Uh, and what we found there that well, there's a huge overrepresentation of white and privately educated athletes within their pathway. So essentially talking and discussing about these barriers or potential barriers for other young cricketers who might have the potential but don't necessarily have the the right race or the right ethnicity or the right relative access to wealth to be able to make that transition so the ecb and the county cricket clubs are actively trying to make changes within their pathways due to some of tom's work um, and it's also something that you know after the black lives matter movement um, something that's quite prevalent in football when you talk about coaching opportunities and managerial opportunities within football. I mean, football has been quite good in offering those opportunities to BAME players at academy levels and then at professional levels. But at those senior levels, we're still seeing that under-representation. So there's some stuff that we can take from that. Um, and then there's a chapter on nature versus nurture. So we look at uh, the environment versus things like genetics. And then there's a, a chapter that looks at uh, parents and birth advantages, things around initial enrolment. And then lastly, a chapter on competitive engineering, which is essentially where you manipulate match play to gain different psychosocial outcomes. So really hoping that it is sort of a practitioner-friendly book that also guides researchers to inform uh, future studies as well but like I said it's been it's been a pleasure working with the with the editors and also the the contributing authors who have been great well again I, I do I think it's quite exciting it's certainly areas that 
I think there's a lot of cross-pollination probably between different sports as well. And I think, you know, that cognitive diversity is certainly a way of us, I mean, I'm focused on football, but I think the cognitive diversity is the key to finding possible solutions to problems that we've got. And all I can do is thank you for coming on. And I'm trying to resist the urge to say, I'll get you back on in a few weeks time because I could just keep asking more and more questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks very much. Like, like you said, I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. We had a presentation at the East Sand recently and everyone started asking questions and we didn't get through to the end, um, which was frustrating because you just want continuous conversations. But I'm always available via email or via Twitter. So, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. No, I appreciate your Twitter's is Liam. Uh, oh, what's your Twitter handle again? I've totally forgotten. I was looking at it a second. <laughs> Liam, is that your next guest? <laughs> where Liam's come from, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's Adam, Adam Helio 7. <clears throat> That's it. My God, there's embarrassment for you, huh? <laughs> looking at my training session tonight and then looking for a Twitter name and it says Liam on it and then I'm calling you Liam. There's a great way to invite somebody back on the podcast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> My girlfriend's dad called me um, called me another name the other day, so that was probably slightly more embarrassing. Oh, that makes me feel mad. <laughs> I can't remember it was something, something like Ed or something, and I was like, "What? Who's <laughs> Ed?" <laughs> Brilliant! Look, I really appreciate you coming on, and I think we will probably rearrange for another, uh, maybe shorter chat because we could go on forever. So, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, thanks very much. <laughs>